whosoever holds this hammer, should he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. I've always wanted to do that. The hammer of Thor, a weapon of unimaginable power, able only to be used by those who are deemed worthy, and any kid whose parents will shell out $14.95 at Target. It's a lot heavier in the movies, I think. Welcome to Christ Community, everyone, and welcome to our new, new series, Heroes. You may have noticed over the last few years that superheroes have kind of taken over. It seems like every other movie that comes out, especially in the summer, is based off of some comic book hero. In fact, over the next five years, between Marvel and DC, there are 38 superhero movies planned to come out. Now, I am a huge superhero fan, but even I think that we may have reached a point of maximum saturation here. So... I don't know what it is. What is it that gets people excited about these sorts of stories? What is it that's deep inside of us that says we want to hear this kind of tale? Why is there a billion dollar industry for this kind of story? I think it's because superheroes tell us something that's true about the world. These stories tell us that there are forces of evil that are beyond our comprehension, that are beyond the ordinary person's ability to understand or fight against. And yet we have hope that maybe, maybe there are some people who can rise above it, who can push back, who can fight, who can live admirably and defeat evil. I think part of the reason why these stories are so inspiring, why we want to go out and see them, is because we also wish that we could be that kind of person, the sort of person who can make the world a better place, who could save lives, who could live a life worth living. Of course, the idea of flying or stopping time or having a body like Chris Helmsworth, that's also appealing too. Uh, but there are more noble things that inspire us. They, embrace us to em uh, they inspire us to embrace something bigger and live in a way that's better. But can we do that? That's the question. Can we actually live up to that? I mean, Thor's hammer says only those who are worthy can wield it. Only those who are good enough can actually be a hero. As followers of Christ, we have heroes too. They are the people found on the pages of scripture. And they may not be super soldiers or genius billionaire playboy philanthropists, although some of them might be. They are the people that God used to make a difference in the world. And sometimes when we read these stories, we think, well, th these people are great, but I can never be like them. I mean, I can admire them, I can be inspired by them, but these people are super holy, super spiritual. These are saints and prophets and apostles. I I'm just me. I, I can't do these sorts of things. But here's what we're going to do. Over the next two months, we're going to look at eight biblical heroes, and our goal is to convince you. Yes, you can be like the people in this book. In fact, you are already more like them than you think. Let's get started with a man named Jacob. To understand the significance of Jacob, you've got to get the big picture of what God is doing in the book of Genesis. Now, when most people think of the book of Genesis, they think of creation. This is how the world began. And that's in Genesis, but it's actually a very small part of Genesis. It's just two chapters out of 50. About 40 of the chapters of Genesis are about one family, the family of Abraham. And why is this family so important? Well, it's because when human beings rebelled against God and evil came into the world, God initiated a rescue plan, and this was the people that he chose to carry it out. This is God's Avengers, his X-Men, his Justice League. This is the team that's going to save the world. And the beginning of God's plan is a promise. God comes to Abraham, he says, I'm, I promise you three things. I'm going to give you a great name, 
You're going to be honored above all peoples in the earth. I'm going to give you a great land. You're going to be here in the land of Canaan, and I'm going to live with you, and I'm going to make you a great blessing. Through your family, salvation is going to come to every nation in the world. And so the story of Genesis is really following the first four generations of this family and seeing how God moves them into places where he can bless them and use them for his purposes. So the promises, promises get passed down from Abraham to his son Isaac and from Isaac to his son Jacob and from Jacob to his 12 sons who become the head of the tribes of Israel. And so Jacob is a big national hero. In fact, the whole nation of Israel is named after him. One of his other names is Israel. And we're going to look at the story where he gets that name today. Jacob is mentioned over 350 times in the Bible. He is the fourth most mentioned person after Jesus, David, and Moses. So he's kind of a big deal. But that's not the reason I chose him to start off this series. The reason I chose him is because Jacob is a complex guy. He's a messy guy. His relationships are always kind of rocky. He's got mixed motives and everything. When you look at him, you can't quite tell if what he's doing is right or wrong. He struggles to believe. In other words... He's a lot like you and me. He's a guy we can relate to. Well, Jacob's story is pretty long. It goes from chapter 25 in Genesis to chapter 49 in Genesis. So we're obviously not going to cover all of it. We're just going to look at one pivotal moment in his life that's found in chapter 32. So if you want to find that, you can go ahead and do that. But to understand this story, I'm going to have to give you a little backstory on Jacob. And so let's begin with this. What is Jacob's problem? His problem is that he always has to win. This is the filter that he looks at life through. Winning and losing. Every relationship is about what he can get out of it. Everybody is either a barrier to his goals or a tool to help him get what he wants. And this began literally in the womb. See, Jacob was a twin, and he had a brother named Esau. And while they were inside their mother, Rebekah, they were fighting and wrestling. And as the two of them were born, Esau came out first, but Jacob is right there behind him in his little baby hand, holding on to Esau's heel, kind of saying, it was almost as if they were saying, all right, who's going to get out there first to get the privileged position of being firstborn in the family? And Jacob's not going to let Esau get out there without a fight. This is how Jacob actually got his name. His name sounds like the word for heel grabber, which is an idiom in Hebrew for deceptive. It's like naming your baby liar or tricky. Not my choices, but um, this didn't just end up being a childhood nickname for him. It ended up characterizing his whole life. He was a deceiver, a manipulator in every one of his relationships. Part of the reason for this is because Jacob's family dynamics are really screwed up. Esau grew up to be this classic manly man. He's hairy. He's a hunter. He's always outside. He's, he, he makes a mean barbecue. Jacob, on the other hand, is a man of the tents. He's a homebody kind of a mama's boy, a little more mental than physical. And as a result, Isaac, their father, favors Esau, the hunter, because he has a taste for wild game. But Rebekah favors Jacob. So the family is rotten with favoritism, and this is a source of a lot of their problems. All of it comes to a head when Jacob decides he's going to steal the family blessing from Esau. Now, the way it worked in those days was when a man was about to die, he would gather all of his children around him, and he would bless each one of them. We've got a number of these scenes in the Bible. What's interesting is that Isaac plans this ceremony, but he only invites Esau. Now, it's a really important ceremony because it wasn't just for kind of emotional closure for the family. This was actually an unrepeatable event where the, the, the blessings of one generation are passed to the next one. Even the material blessings are passed to the next one. 
And so this is a real slight to Jacob, but Rebecca catches wind of it and she says, Jacob, we've got to figure out a way to steal this blessing from Esau. And so they hatch a plan, and the plan hinges on the fact that Isaac at this point in his life is basically blind. He can't make out faces. And so they dress Jacob up in Esau's clothing, and they put some kind of uh, fur on his arm so that he feels a bit hairy, and they make some stew that tastes like Esau's cooking. Jacob goes into the tent. Isaac says, who is it? He says, I'm Esau. And of course, Isaac is a bit suspicious, and he asks all sorts of questions. But in the end, the stew was delicious, and he kind of smelled like a hunter, so he must have been Esau, and so he blesses him. As Jacob leaves the tent, he's got these empty dishes, he's coming out, but Esau's coming in with his fresh bowl of stew. He's eager for his blessing, but he's too late. He's been tricked. And in Esau's anger, he cries out something really important. He says, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Isn't that name we've been calling him all his life, deceiver? Isn't it true? Doesn't it fit? Didn't he live up to it? He's a cheat. He's a liar. As you can imagine, a man like Esau doesn't take this sort of thing lying down. He's going to do what he does best. He's going to hunt. And he's going to hunt for Jacob. So he vows as soon as dad's funeral is over and he's in the ground, Jacob's the next one. He's a dead man. So Jacob prudently runs away. He decides he's going to hide out with his mother's family, but they live in another country. They live outside the land of Canaan, so he has to leave the promised land to go to them. And just as he's about to leave the promised land, God says, I'm going to have a conversation with Jacob. And this is what God says. It's very remarkable. He says, I am the God of your father, Abraham. I'm the God of your father, Isaac. And now I'm going to bless you like I've blessed them. I'm going to give you all of this land. I'm going to give you numerous descendants. I'm going to go with you wherever you go. Same blessing he gave to Abraham and to Isaac. Now, it's interesting because when Abraham got this blessing, we're told that he responds by trusting in God. And when Isaac got the blessing, we're told that he obeys God. But look at how Jacob responds when he receives the promise. He, he sets up a stone and he, he sets it there. And this is what he says. If God will be with me and watch over me on this journey, if God will be with me and watch over me on this journey that I'm taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return in safety to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. God's promise is not enough for Jacob. He has some conditions. As long as God helps him win in life, he'll give God what's his. But not until then. You ever do this with God? Make your obedience or your trust conditional? Hold out until he proves himself. Jacob makes his vow and he leaves the land. And over the next 20 years, a whole lot happens. He takes on a couple of wives and a couple of concubines. That is a whole other story. He has 11 sons and a daughter. He acquires a huge amount of wealth, servants and livestock and all sorts of other stuff. And he also manages to make some enemies. You see, his lying and cheating didn't stop with Esau. And so as he's with his mother's family, by the time he leaves, he is being chased by angry relatives that he has managed to swindle. When someone always has to win, this is what happens. Their life is a trail of broken relationships. Maybe you know what I mean. You can't show up at family parties anymore because there's too much bad blood. There's tension among your coworkers because of the ways that you turn every situation to make yourself look better. Maybe your selfishness is already broken up one marriage and now another one's starting to fall apart or you're a teenager at home and you can't look your siblings in the eye or have a pleasant conversation with them 
Well, once Jacob has burned his bridges with his extended family, he heads back to Canaan. And when he gets to the border, he stops right there because he knows that if he takes one more step into the country, he's going to have to face Esau. This is going to be the point where all of his lying and stealing and selfishness is going to come back and catch up with him. If he goes one step further, he doesn't know exactly what Esau is going to do, but he's pretty sure that after 20 years, he's still pretty angry. So let's pick up the story here in Genesis 32. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Jacob begins by scouting out the situation, by sending some messengers to Esau. And the way the, the message is, is like this. He says, Esau, buddy old pal, you know, it's been a while. We haven't seen each other in, you know, a long time. It looks like you've done well for yourself. And you know what? I've done pretty well for myself too, you know? So I, I know it's been a while, but why don't we let bygones be bygones? You know, did, did someone say something about a blessing? Oh, uh, it was nothing, nothing. We'll be good, right? Let's see what happens when the messengers come back. Verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob and they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Now, why would you send 400 men? I don't think they're bringing milk and cookies. <laughs> this is an army. This is a raiding party. And so Jacob, understandably, freaks out. We're told he's in great fear and distress. And so Jacob does what he always does. He tries to take control of the situation and try to work out a victory for himself. So he tries a few different strategies. First, he divides up his camp into two, thinking, okay, if Esau attacks this group, this group will be able to get away. Then he tries a second strategy, maybe one you've tried in a desperate moment. He prays. This is actually the first recorded prayer of Jacob in the entire Bible, and it's in verse 9. Let's read it. He said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all your kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper. And will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Now, commentators are divided about how to take this prayer. Because on the one hand, everything he prays for is great. He, he does the sort of thing that happens in all sorts of biblical prayers. He thanks God. He confesses his unworthiness. He asks for his help. He leans on his promises. He does good stuff in the prayer. But because of where it comes up in Jacob's life, a whole lot of people are suspicious of his motives at this moment. Especially when you think of how he left the land. Remember, he said, God, if you will bless me, if you'll do all these things for me, then I'll worship you. It's almost like he's saying, all right, God, here's your chance. Prove yourself and earn my loyalty. This is the moment. Can you do it? It's almost like he's holding these things over God's head a little bit. Jacob tries a third strategy. He sends five waves of servants, each one leading a flock or a herd of animals. He sends hundreds of animals out to Esau. And the idea here is he's trying to buy a truce, you know, just sort of win him over, pacify him a little bit. And he may also be thinking, you know, if I send enough animals, it's going to be really hard for his army to organize an attack around all of those flocks and herds. It's difficult to punch someone in the face when you're holding a pile of Christmas gifts. So that's the idea here. <laughs> Jacob tries all of these things, but the question that's hanging over it all is, will it work? Will any of, any of his plots, his strategies actually come through? For him. Now here's the thing about Jacob strategizing. There's nothing wrong with it. None of these things are bad things. These are 
prudent things to do in a situation like this. I don't want to criticize Jacob for that. It's not what he's doing that's the problem. It's what he's not doing that's the problem. You see, Jacob has missed in his life that wherever he goes, in every broken relationship, in every dangerous situation that he finds himself in, there is one common denominator, and that's him. Jacob is the source of his own problems. And right now, Jacob is only dealing with the external situation out there, and he is not dealing with the situation in here. And so God decides that's what he's going to deal with. And this is the part where Jacob becomes a biblical superhero. Let's jump ahead to verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. That's a a river. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions, and so Jacob was left alone. Now, sometimes when I'm trying to figure out what's going on in a passage of Scripture, I actually like to sketch out the scene, kind of draw it, because sometimes seeing what's going on is easier than just reading or hearing it. And so this is what I drew for this situation. Look at what's going on. You've got Esau coming with his 400 men this direction, and then you've got Jacob's gifts that are about to meet him, and then he sends over his family, his wives and kids, and then all of his stuff, and then there, right behind the river, is Jacob himself. Now, what do you call a man who puts himself in this position? A coward. He is a coward who loves himself more than he loves the people entrusted to him. He will win at any cost, even if he has to sacrifice his family. Let's keep going in verse 24. Something strange is about to happen here. I can't really explain it. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, this kind of comes out of left field. It's very confusing. I think we're supposed to be a little left with some mystery here because Jacob is also wondering what's going on. You have to remember, he is in the dark literally at this point. This is nighttime. There are no electric lights. He cannot see this man's face. He doesn't know who has attacked him. But my guess is this. Jacob probably thinks this must be one of Esau's men, right? Like who else would come and ambush him? It's probably someone sent to assassinate him or get some recon on the situation. And so that's why Jacob is fighting with him. That's why he's holding on to him and he fights all night long with him because he thinks, I can't let this guy get back to Esau. He, he might even be thinking, if I hold on to him, I'll have a little leverage in the negotiations when I actually encounter my brother. So he keeps on fighting and fighting. But then this happens. Verse 25, the man saw that he could not overpower him, so he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. It becomes obvious both to Jacob and to those of us following along at home that whoever he is wrestling, this is no mere mortal. This is not one of Esau's men. It's not spelled out directly here, but we find out later that Jacob realizes that this man is, if not God himself, at least a representative of God, maybe the angel of the Lord. And so that means the stakes in this fight have suddenly gone up a notch. And there are a couple of details here that I think that when taken together should make you say, what what the heck is happening here? Two details are this. Verse 15 says, the man could not overpower him. Not 15, 25. says, the man could not overpower him. And then it says that with just a simple touch... He throws Jacob's hip out of socket. Just a a flick of his wrist and he breaks his hip. Now, I'm not sure about you, but that sure sounds like overpowering someone to me, doesn't it? So what's going on here? I think what's happening is God has a very specific goal for this fight. 
God is trying to address the real problem, remember, Jacob's heart. He's actually answering Jacob's prayer for help right here. God could have just solved Jacob's problem. He could have just made the whole situation go away. But if he did that and left his selfishness unchecked, then Jacob was just going to find himself in another situation just like it in the future. He was going to continue to go through life, creating conflict after conflict after conflict. And so God is going to deal with the problem once and for all. And this is what God does with us sometimes. We ask for help, and he doesn't just snap his fingers and pay our bills or heal our body or answer all of our questions, because that's not God's ultimate goal for us. His goal for us is for our hearts to be transformed. He wants to change us from the inside out. And one of the best ways to do that, I'm afraid to say, is to make us wrestle. Notice how God does this with Jacob. He avoids two extremes. He doesn't ignore Jacob. He doesn't leave his selfishness unchallenged. But he also doesn't destroy Jacob. He doesn't crush him. He could do it, but he doesn't. Instead, he engages Jacob where he's at. He engages his heart. So the reason it says that God couldn't overpower him isn't because God lacked the physical strength to pin Jacob. It's because in order to accomplish his ultimate goal, God had to engage Jacob and struggle with him until his heart was open. God ultimately wants from us willing change, not coerced compliance. He doesn't want slaves. He wants daughters and sons. And that's what he does in our lives too. He doesn't shrug off our sin, but he also doesn't destroy us. He wrestles with us. And God is wrestling with some of you right now. For some of you, there are things in your life that you know need to change. Sins that have gone on too long. Patterns of behavior that are unhealthy for you. Things that you know you need to deal with, but you haven't addressed. It might have to do with your money. It might have to do with an addictive behavior. Often it has to do with your sex life, what you're looking at or who you're sleeping with. It might be a grudge you can't let go of or maybe a need to be in control all the time. Whatever it is, you know about it and God wants you to do something about it, but you're not ready. You're wrestling and you haven't given in. After a long night, the man finally says, all right, enough's enough. Morning is coming, we gotta get to the point. Why won't you let me go? And Jacob replies in verse 26. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob here realizes he can get what he's always wanted in life. Assurance that he is going to be okay. That he in the end is going to win. He says, God, will you bless me? I'm not going to let you go until I have assurance. The, the, the thing is, Jacob has gone through his whole life. And in some ways, he's been blessed. He's got uh, wives and children and wealth, and he's got promises from God, but his heart won't trust God enough. He won't uh, believe God's promises enough. He's got to get some assurance, some definitive proof that he's going to be blessed. So he says, will you bless me? And he gets a strange response in verse 27. The man said to him, what is your name? Now, this is obviously not a request for information. God knows exactly who Jacob is. So why would he ask for his name? Well, in that culture, as in many cultures, names are more than just what you use to get someone's attention. They're meant to communicate something about someone's character. And so the question here is, who are you really? Jacob answers, I'm Jacob. He owns up to his name with all of the baggage attached to it. He says, who are you really? And Jacob says, I am. I'm a trickster. I'm a con man. I'm a liar and a thief. Everything my family has said about me is actually true. I am part of the problem. And here's the key moment. The first step to becoming a biblical superhero is to admit 
that you are actually the villain. And this doesn't just mean that you admit that you've made mistakes. It doesn't just mean that you say, well, sometimes I sin, but basically I'm an all right person. This means that admitting deep down something is fundamentally wrong with you. That at the core of you is something warped and broken and even evil. This is admitting that you are not one of the good guys. In the story of Thor and Loki, if you've seen the movies, it's the story of two brothers. Thor, the the strong and courageous, brave one, and Loki, the one who's not quite as strong, but he's crafty and good with a disguise and a scheme. And Thor, he is favored by his father. He is in line for the throne, but Loki resents him for that and resents his father for it. And so Loki hatches a scheme to trick his father and steal the throne from Thor. Does this sound familiar? And the whole movie, you are rooting for Thor. You want Thor to win. He is the hero. He's the guy who's supposed to come out on top. Now, you might like Loki because he's a great villain and Tom Hiddleston just steals every scene he's in. But you're cheering for Thor. You want him to win. And Jacob has lived his whole life wishing he were Thor, that he was the good guy that everybody was cheering for, the favored son, the rightful heir. But here is the moment of truth when Jacob has to say, I am not the hero. I'm Loki. I'm the bad guy in this story. And in church world, when we use the word confession, this is what we mean. We mean that we admit that in God's story, in the story of the universe, we are not the heroes, we are the villains. And we've got a really hard time doing this. The same month that the last Thor movie came out, Disney, the owners of Marvel, released another movie about two siblings. Maybe you've heard of it, Frozen. If you have a daughter under the age of 10 or just a connection to the internet, you have probably heard, let it go, let it go, more times than you care to count. Why is it that that song struck a chord with so many people? I don't think it's just because of the killer vocals. I think it's because the message of the song gets us something deep in us. We want to find out that who we are is actually enough. That that, the key to life is accepting ourselves as, as we are and just expressing it. We don't want to admit that deep down something about us is not okay. We want to think of ourselves as the good guys in the story. Now, it's interesting that when Elsa sings the song, Let It Go, in Frozen, she's doing the exact wrong thing. She's making a decision that will isolate her, that will cut her off from the relationships in her life, and will ultimately destroy not just her kingdom, but the world. She is acting as the villain at this point in the story. And so are we. Like Jacob, when we put ourselves first, when we have to win, when we use other people for our own purposes, we contribute to our isolation. We contribute to the brokenness in our relationships, and we ultimately contribute to the problem that is destroying our world. So if that's true, where does it leave us? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just wallow in shame and guilt? Is that what God wants from us? I mean, some people think that's what religion does, right? They tell you you're evil and you feel bad about yourself. End of story. But it's not the end of the story. Because in this story, God doesn't bless the strong or the worthy. He blesses the bad guy. Given a choice between Thor and Loki, God chooses Loki. Let's read in verse 28. The man said to him, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. God says, yes, you are Jacob. You are the liar, the cheat, and the villain, but that is not the final word about you. I am going to give you a new name, a new identity. I am going to tell you who you really are. 
And this is the second step in becoming a biblical superhero. You must allow God to reveal your true identity. Because ultimately, we don't get to answer that question of who we are. Our ideas of who we are, our hopes for who we are, they don't define us. And better than that, our sin doesn't define us. When asked the question, who are you really, the person who gets to answer it is God. And now there are some of you here who you've gone through that first step. You, you can admit that you're a villain. You can admit that your selfishness has made a mess in your life, that you have something deeply wrong with you. But you feel stuck in that moment. You don't know what to do. You wish you weren't living the way you were, doing the things you were doing. You wish something were, would change. And so what I want to tell you now is really important for you to hear. When God answers the question, who are you really? He answers it by sending Jesus. Jesus came to live for us, to die for us, and be raised for us. He came to save us. And what that means is that when God looks at you, he doesn't just see a sinner. He sees a beloved son or daughter, someone who is precious to him, someone he would give his life for. There's a, a pastor named Jack Miller. He used to sum up the Christian message like this. He'd say, cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. But in Jesus, you're far more loved than you ever could have imagined. Isn't that great? Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, explained it this way. He said, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing for it. Let me unpack that one. What this means is that when God is choosing who to bless and who to love, he doesn't go through the world and say, okay, let me find someone who's really obedient. Oh, there they are. I'm going to love them. Oh, let me find someone who's really generous. Oh, there they are. I'm going to bless them. He doesn't say, oh, let me find all of the good people, all of the best and brightest, and I'm going to love and bless them. I'm on the side of the good people. No, instead what he does is he says, I'm going to love people first. I'm going to find the scoundrels, the rebels, the failures, and I am going to love them even before they're good people. And because I love them, it's going to create in them a transformation. It, the, my love is going to generate in them goodness. The things that please me, I'm going to create in this person's life. And so the love of God is not a reward for good behavior. It is the cause of good behavior. It creates good behavior. He doesn't find what's pleasing to him. He creates it. He doesn't find Israel. He creates him. So God says to Jacob, who are you? And Jacob says, I'm a liar. And God says, not anymore. And like a loving father, God gives him a new name. And from that, a transformed life. Let's read again in verse 28. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome the key word here that I, I look at is overcome. And it's kind of a, a funny word, the idea of winning or prevailing. It's really odd that that word would be chosen here because when you look at Jacob's situation, nothing about it looks like winning. He, he's wrestled with people and he's won. I mean, he's just destroyed every relationship in his life and his brother wants to kill him. Doesn't sound like winning. He's wrestled with God and won. God has just broken his hip and forced him to admit that he's a bad guy. That doesn't sound like winning. And this is where we get the third thing you need to do to become a biblical superhero. You need to accept weakness as a superpower. Another way to put it might be this. You need to accept defeat as a form of victory. This is the paradoxical message that the Bible comes back to over and over again. Jesus said it this way. He said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. 
The Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' earliest followers, learned this when he faced a burden in his life that wouldn't go away. And he prayed for God's help, but this is what God said. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responded by saying this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This verse is going to be kind of a running theme throughout our series because, as you'll discover, when we look at biblical heroes, from a distance, they look larger than life. But when you get up close, you realize the thing that actually makes them a hero is not their strengths, but the way God's grace and power shows up in their moments of greatest weakness. In our own lives, accepting weakness and defeat like this is incredibly hard. But I got to tell you, it is the place where God is at work in profound ways that you would never expect. In a couple of weeks, we're going to hear a great story about this when Jill and Aaron Kelly come for the the WOW weekend we're having. They're going to talk about their family's experience of suffering. And what's incredible about their story is that it's in their, their moments of defeat and weakness that they actually experience God's presence with them. You won't want to miss it. Well, the conversation between God and Jacob continues. Verse 29, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. Well, why does Jacob ask for God's name? It might be because he's curious. I would be in that situation. But it's more likely that Jacob is trying to figure out what kind of relationship they're going to have from here on out. Because how you use someone's name tells you about your relationship with them. If you can call someone by their first name, it makes you much more of a peer. But if you have to use a title with someone, it means that they have some kind of authority in your life. And so the way God answers this question is going to spell out the kind of relationship that they're going to have. But it's interesting. God gives kind of a twist here. He doesn't actually answer the question. He just asks another one. He says, why do you ask my name? And I think the subtext here is something like this. What what are you looking for here, Jacob? Do you want to know my name because you want to be my equal, my peer? If that's the case, don't even go there. But maybe you're asking the question because you want me. You want to know who I really am. Well, in that case, let's see what happens. After the conversation ends, Jacob commemorates the occasion by giving the place where he's at a new name, Peniel, which means the face of God. And this is where we get to our final point. Once you have seen God face to face and lived, you don't have to worry about winning anymore. Verse 30. Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. As you see this part, you should be thinking this. How in the world is that possible? How is it possible for someone to encounter God and walk away alive? Because we are told throughout the Bible, no one can see God and live. You can't encounter God and expect to walk away unscathed. Because God is a holy God. He is pure and righteous. He has a perfect sense of justice. And so for God, evil is not a minor deal. It is an attack on his world. It is an insult to his character. It is an affront to his authority. And so he doesn't take it lightly. And he shouldn't. It's actually one of the great things about God. He's really consistent. He always stands up for what is good. And he always opposes what is wrong. So how is it that Jacob can actually stand before God and say, yep, genuine bad guy, I'm a villain, rotten to the core, and then walk away, not just alive, but blessed? 
It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you are watching a movie and the, the good guys struggle the whole movie to finally capture the bad guy and they've got the bad guy, they've incapacitated him and they forced a confession out of him and they're standing before the judge and the judge says, you're free. Oh, and here's a bag of money. Oh, and why don't we be friends now? We should do vacations together. It'll be great. You would say that is the worst ending to a story ever other than the TV show Lost. That was terrible. <laughs> How does Jacob get away with it? To answer the question, you got to read forward in your Bible, because the only way to explain what happens to Jacob and what happens to us when we encounter God is in light of what Jesus did. Jesus is the one person who's genuinely a good guy. We're all villains, but he is the hero. He's the one person who can stand before God and say, I deserve to be blessed. Can I have my blessing? But when Jesus does that, that's not what happens to him. He doesn't get a reward. He gets the cross. He gets death, punishment. Jesus, the one truly good person, instead of getting what he deserved, volunteers to get what we deserve. He took our penalty, the one that we had earned, so that we wouldn't have to. And so the reason you can stand before God as a bad guy and be blessed is because Jesus, the one genuinely good guy, stood before God and was cursed. Jesus could have insisted on winning, but instead he chose to lose so that we could experience his victory. Jesus, the strong one, chose to become weak so that our weakness could be transformed into his strength. This is what we call the gospel. It's the good news that Christians proclaim. And it changes everything. Well, once we have encountered God face to face and have lived, it changes our perspective on every situation in life. Look at how it changed Jacob. After the fight, the morning comes and Jacob is still wondering what's going to happen. Because he, he may have dealt with God, but the situation with Esau hasn't changed. He probably still wants to kill him. But Jacob's attitude has been radically transformed. Look at the beginning of chapter 33. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. And he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. It's very interesting. Remember the, the order before? Jacob's dead last. Well, look at this. Look at where he's at now. He's right there in the front. He, he still doesn't know what Esau's going to do when they meet up. But he's going to take ownership. And what's he doing as he's approaching Esau? He's bowing down again and again. He's basically saying, I don't care about winning anymore. What I care about is making things right. Why is it that Jacob can do this? It's because he survived an encounter with God. Now he doesn't have to win with anyone else because he's one with God. I mean, once you've stood before the one whose opinion ultimately matters in your life, who else's opinion can trump that? If you have faced God and lived, it means you can say to your spouse, I was wrong, even if you have to swallow your pride. If you have faced God to live, you can say to your parents, I have been lying to you for months and I need to come clean. If you have faced God and lived, you can tell your boss, I have been cheating the company and I need to make it right. And yes, there may be serious consequences for any one of these things, but you have faced God and been blessed. Once you have faced God and lived, you are free. When you have settled things with God, you can settle things with anyone. So what happens when Jacob actually meets Esau? Well, I can imagine the scene. 
Jacob is limping because of his hip, maybe leaning on someone for support. He sees up in the horizon Esau standing there, and when Esau catches him, he starts to run. And in those days in that culture, a rich, powerful man like Esau would not run. So this is a strange situation, and Jacob has got to be thinking, okay, this is it. This is how it's all going to end for me. I can't run away. I can't fight back. There is no escaping this. It's over. And as Esau approaches, he throws out his arms, and this is what verse 4 says. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. There is no explaining this moment. It should not be happening like this. Sure, Jacob's gifts could have bought sort of a, a truce, but after 20 years of holding a grudge, after having sworn to kill Jacob, there is no reason why Esau should be happy to see him. He should not be moved to tears at his return, but he is. This is a miracle. It is sheer grace, and Jacob knows it. He says to Esau, to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. What would happen? What would happen if we tried this? If we admitted our sin, we owned up to our problems. If we made the steps necessary to start to mend relationships. If we stopped wrestling and fighting back with God and let him bless us. I think we would see God's power and grace show up in our moments of greatest weakness. We're going to sing one more song today. It is a song of surrender. It is a song of commitment to God saying, we want your will and your way in our lives. I don't know where you're at right now. If you're wrestling, this is probably the moment, the moment where you give up and say, God, I belong to you. I lay me down. I'm not my own. We're going to be collecting our offering during the song, so the ushers are going to come by. Join with us and sing. I'll pray to close us. Father, you are the great and merciful one. You are so patient and kind. You persist in wrestling with us even when we are stubborn and fighting back against you again and again. God, we thank you that ultimately you win our hearts, that you win us over, that you give us a new name, a new identity, and your grace even in our weakness. God, we pray that right now that as we sing that you would give our hearts freedom to let you be the Lord of our lives, to have your will and way in us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.